great time of worship we had today and experienced. And most of you, my generation, my age, uh, I've met you and know you in our small group. It's been, um, we started back in the summer over at the Glasses House uh, as this church started up, and I met with Rodney, and uh, we, we've been a part of it, but most of the young people and college age, I, I don't know you and hadn't met you a lot. But um, about a month ago, Rodney asked me if I would uh, preach for him whenever they had their baby. Sounded like they were had it all planned out and when it was supposed to be. It was supposed to be next weekend. So about 6 o'clock this morning, he called me, and he sounded pretty perky after being up all night. But he was uh, asked me if I'd fill in for him this morning. I counted as a privilege. Now, we don't have any notes because this happened unexpectedly. And so how many Bibles do we even have here this morning? You know, people don't ever bring Bibles to church anymore because everything's on the screen, right? Do we have any Bibles? We have a few? Okay. If you want one, there's one underneath your chair, I think, because really we're just going to be at one set of scriptures. We're going to look at one of the stories that happened in the life of Jesus today in the book of Mark. Mark chapter 4, if you have a Bible and want to turn to that. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 4, verse 35, and I realize you don't know me, and I don't know a lot of you, and so that kind of sometimes makes it uncomfortable when we first start, but uh, I hope you'll get something from this today as we've studied. Uh, if, uh, if it would have been next week, we would have been in the book of Acts, because I know Rodney's been working through some of the, vo- the values and our core values that we as a church want to address, and so I was working on a message in chapter 3 and 4. So um, we're going to back up a little bit and look in Mark. And uh, so we won't be right in the book of Acts. But as Rodney begins to work through the back book of Acts for, for us, uh, you know these first couple of chapters of Acts are real energetic and exciting as we think of the church starting and 3,000 people being saved. And, and uh, you see all the miracles begin to take place. But very quickly into the book of Acts, what begins to take place in Christians' lives? A word called persecution. And things began to happen to people. And people were put to death. And people, young people, all the way through senior adult age, began to give their life up for Christ. And there were a lot of question marks that you find throughout the book of Acts about people struggling and wondering, why would God allow people to be put to death if they're living faithful for God. I can remember a couple here in Dallas who had a a precious little boy. He was three years of age, and uh, they found out that they were getting ready to have another baby, and after a couple of months, they found out it was going to be a little girl. And so they picked out the girl's name. Her name was going to be Karen when she was born, and they were just so excited about now having a son and now having a daughter. And, uh, you know, the average family in America is 2.3. I'm always, never have seen a .3 child anywhere, but most people have a son and a daughter, and then it's over with, you know, have two children, some have three. But this family just thought that would be the perfect ideal situation. Have a son, and now going to have a daughter born. The day came when the, she went to the emergency room there and at the hospital, had the delivery, and it was just a precious little girl. She was rosy cheek and dark blue eyes and just a beautiful little girl. And the mom and dad were so excited, and that night everything went well. And the next morning, uh, the father had come back to the hospital. The doctor walked in and said, 
I know this is going to sound a little strange, but your daughter needs a blood transfusion. And if we don't do it right now, she's going to have some complications. And I don't have time to really give into all the details of it all, but we need to do this. And he filled out a few, filled in a few little facts for him, and, and soon, within just 30 or 45 minutes, the doctors and nurses came in, took the baby from the room, and went away. In about an hour, the doctor walked back into the room, and he looked to the mom's face, and there was a big puzzled look on his face, and he just said, I don't understand what happened. We did everything we possibly could to save your little daughter's life, but your daughter has died. And they didn't really know how to handle that. They were a very solid Christian couple, active in their church, super involved in their church, grew up in church, had served God faithfully, tithed, did all the things that we think is going to make a person a good Christian. But now all of a sudden they were going through a trauma that they didn't really know how to deal with. And as the lady began to cry and fell under her husband's uh, arms and just uh, all she could just muster up and all she could say when she finally got a composure a little bit, was where in the world is God when you need him the most? Now, before you get too critical about that statement that she made, have you ever made that? Have you ever thought that? Have you been through some traumas in your life, and if you're a young person or college age, maybe life is just still too good for you to have experienced any difficulties or crisis, but the day's going to come somewhere down in your life and maybe more often than just once, that maybe that thought will creep into your mind that you say, where in the world is God when you need him the most? You know, the disciples experienced that same thought, and this is the story we're going to read. In Mark chapter 4, verse 35. Now, before I get there, let me back up and give you a little bit of detail of how this started. Jesus had already chosen his disciples. He'd been up on the sermon, up on the mountain, preaching the Sermon of the Mount that's recorded in Matthew. This particular story that we're going to read is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, found in all of them. And so this is, I just chose the one in Mark simply because I, I really think it puts every word exactly the way we need to see it here today. But in the book of Matthew, it tells us as he left the mountain, came off of preaching that Sermon on the Mount and all the great truths that we find in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. As we listen to that, he comes down the mountain and he's headed towards the Sea of Galilee to get in the boat and go on the other side as we read here in just a second. But on the way, all of a sudden, we, we hear about an individual that had leprosy. And Jesus stops and deals with that man and heals him right there on the spot. A little bit further down the road as they're headed down to the sea, a, a centurion soldier, a Roman centurion soldier, runs up to him and says, my son's about to die. I believe that if you don't even need to come to my house. If you'll just speak the word of healing, my son in my house will be made well. And Jesus said, you blow me away. I've never seen somebody with that kind of faith before. And he said, go back home and you'll find your son as well. And then we found out that Peter, one of his disciples' mother-in-law, was about to pass away. And so Jesus stopped by her house and healed her 
and there was this great ceremony that took place, and then they go down to the, the seashore, and it's late in the afternoon, and here's our story. And the Bible says, That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side, the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as it was, into the boat. And there were also other boats with him. You ever heard a sermon on that before? Other boats that were with Jesus. That's an interesting sermon, but we don't have time to do that. There was also other boats with him, verse 37. Now here they are, they pushed out to shore, they're crossing over the Sea of Galilee, going to the other side, and all of a sudden a furious storm came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Verse 38, Jesus was in the back of the boat, sleeping on a cushion. Now, again, get the picture if you hadn't seen this. I mean, the boat's just rocking and rolling, the storm is raining, and the waves are crashing over the boat. The boat's filling up with water. It's about to sink. And Jesus is sound asleep in the back of the boat. That doesn't even sound be, uh, you know, feasible that that could happen, but he was. And when he was sleeping in the back of the boat, all of a sudden the disciples began to discuss among each other. You think we ought to wake him up? You think we ought to do something? And finally the disciples woke him up, and here's what they said. Teacher, master, don't you even care if we're all going to drown? He got up, he rebuked the winds, and said to the waves, Peace, be still. And all of a sudden it went from a huge storm with the wind and the waves and all the rest of it to just bliss. And just about as quiet as it is in here right now. And look what happened. All of a sudden, the winds died down, and it was completely calm. In verse 40, he said to the disciples, can you imagine as he turns and looks at them? He says, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And verse 41, they were terrified, and they asked each other, who in the world is this guy that even the winds and the waves Who is he? Now, this wasn't three years after they had followed him and watched him raise the dead and all this. This was early in his ministry, maybe six months into his ministry. The disciples were still following along, and they walk up to the, they wake up to this fact of who in the world is this guy that we're following that even the winds and the rain listen to? What do you do in life when Jesus is asleep? in your boat what do you do in life when your life just looks like it's going great and everything's running smooth and all of a sudden a storm of life comes but Jesus is asleep in the back of your boat what do you do with that that's the same question that Karen's parents asked that his uh, Karen's mother said what in the world where in the world is God when you need him the most it's just phrased a little bit different what do you do when Jesus is asleep in your boat? That's what a parent said whenever their little daughter pulled over their aquarium in their house and smashed the little baby and killed it. That's the same thing that a parent will say, how many times, how many friends do we know when you go and sit to the doctor's office and the doctor says, I'm sorry to tell you, you only have three months left to live, it's cancer. 
How many people do you know that are going through that? What do you do when you're sitting there listening uh, and your boss walks in and he says, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to let you go. We just can't keep you on any longer. And that day you lose your job. What do you do when Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat? And I'm talking to some good, solid people here that's been in life, all, been in church all your life. What do you do when Jesus is asleep in the back of your boat? That's the same questions that people and families find whenever, again, they lose a child, they lose their job, they have finances problems, they can't pay their bills, cancer is pronounced upon them. Whatever the difference, the difficult is, what do you do when Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat? I believe this scripture gives us some answers to that. But before we look at the answer, and that's the end of the message, can I back up and say there are a couple of problems, just two problems, that arises from this story that is going to touch all of our life from time to time. And here's the first part of, that, of the problem. The first part of the problem is this, that from time to time, no matter how prepared you are, crises and problems are going to jump on you just in an instant. Now, these disciples, many of them had grown up on the lake. Some of them were fishermen. They knew exactly how to take care of the, the, wa the waves and the water as it came upon the boat. They knew exactly that if they got out into that storm in the evening, out into the lake into the evening, that maybe the storm might come. They, they were prepared for that. They knew that could happen. But even though they were prepared, they were still frightened by the storm. Now, from time to time, you got all things going on cool in your Christian life. You got a Bible. You're having your morning devotions. If you grew up in a good youth program, like I know a lot of you guys did, Rodney taught you have your daily devotion and, you know, have all of that and be involved in Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night and we're all involved in church and being actively involved in church. Because why? We're told over and over, as long as things are going great, you need to be building yourself up spiritually because when the bad times come, you don't really have enough energy to do that. So get prepared for when the problems come. You ever heard anybody say that? Have we? Have we? Some of us? Okay. We, you've heard preachers say that. You've heard Sunday school teachers say that. All of us have heard. Get prepared during the good times. And that's what we do. We spend a lifetime getting prepared spiritually to face the crises that come into life. But let me tell you, when the crisis comes suddenly, and that's the way they always come, they don't, just don't gradually get upon you. They just suddenly come. When the crisis comes, it really really doesn't matter how prepared you are. You can't stop the crisis from coming. Children do die. Christian family that when I pastored a church down in Houston, teenage son, he was a senior in high school, active in the youth department. I mean, was there every time the doors were open. They were too. Stayed home from school one day. Broke up with his little girlfriend the day before. Stayed home from school that morning, took his shotgun out in the backyard and killed himself. Took that family 10 years to ever get a smile back on their face. I mean, that's a crisis that doesn't matter how prepared you are, suddenly it comes upon you and brings devastation. And that's when you might ask, 
Why in the world is Jesus asleep in the back of the boat? I mean, where are you, God, when all these things are going crazy? I thought because I was active, because I was serving you, because I'm tithing, because I do all these things everybody says we ought to be doing, those bad things aren't going to get me. Let me tell you, as long as you live in this sin-cursed world that we live in, we're going to have crises, we're going to have difficulties, things are going to happen. But let me show you the second problem. That was the first. The first was what? Even though you're prepared, even though you're ready, even though you've grown spiritually, even though you're ready, problems can come suddenly. But here's the second part of that. The second part of that problem is this. Whenever they come, it makes us frightened, and it produces fear in our life. Now, most of us as Christians would say, you know, I, I, I can handle anything. I'm not afraid. I'm not going to be fearful. The devil can't, you know, whoop up on me. I've got Jesus living in me. We sing all the great Christian songs of the faith and choruses today that talk about how strong we are and how we, can't, we can overcome anything. The problem is that whenever those crises come, there's a lot of fear that comes into our life. It frightens us. And the biggest reason it frightens us is because we don't know how to deal with the unknown. My generation, when we went to the dentist as kids, we probably went two or three times as kids. That's it. And then if you had a toothache, what did you do? If you were spending the night with Grandma back in the 50s and 60s, she'd take an aspirin and you'd stick it on your tooth and let it dissolve. Anybody ever done that? Right? All the old people have. You know, all the old people have done that. And it works great for about two hours, and then the pain starts again. You know? So as a kid, you only went to a dentist two or three times. Now you've got to take them every six months or you're a bad parent. Right? You know, that's what they tell you. So, you know, so eventually as an adult, you start having problem with your teeth, and you have to go to the dentist. Remember the first time it just wouldn't go away and the aspirin didn't work any longer and you had to go to the dentist? Do you remember how fearful that experience was? Because all you can remember is that this big guy with a hairy hand would stick his hand all the way down your throat to do something in your mouth, and it, that's the only thing you remember as a child. And the unknown produced fear in our life. That, that always happens. The same thing takes place when crises come. We don't know what to do next. We don't know exactly how it's all going to unfold. I'll share an illustration in my life. I've got, I pastored churches that were youth minister or bus minister for 30 years. That's what I've done for 30 solid years, up to about four and a half years ago. I've seen a lot of circumstances, seen people go through a lot of tragedies, and seen a lot of great things take place in God's church, too. But I'll never forget, over a four, about a four-year period of time, some crises that came into my life. Now, I was a person, followed the rules, did all, everything the right way, everything I was supposed to do. But I'll never forget when my married daughter called me on the phone and said, she was three or four months pregnant, said, my husband just left me. He doesn't want to get married. Can I move back into your house? Now, she'd been out on her own for five, six years, been through college. Wasn't any big deal for us to say, come on. So 
But that was, that was a tragedy that began to unfold, a very difficult thing. And we went from that tragedy to then my middle daughter, who many of you know, Wendy, that comes here, who has a little boy about this tall named Jack, who was born with spina bifida. And let me tell you, I'll never forget when Todd and Wendy and my wife and I sat in the doctor's office and they said, the tests are there, there's nothing that can be done for the child who does have spina bifida. And they gave us some option, you could abort the child or you could just let the child be born normal and, and he'll have be pr most likely paralyzed from the waist down or there's a clinic in Nashville, Tennessee that you can go and have some surgery done. And there were people all over the United States literally began to pray for Jack to be healed. Because I believe, just like you believe, do you believe God could heal Jack in his mother's womb? I mean, we all believe that. I mean, God's a God of miracle. God could do that. And my wife's mom and dad, or dad was an evangelist for 45 years in the Southern Baptist Conventions. Uh, he knew churches all over the place. Everybody all over the place prayed. And we honestly believed that God would heal Jack. But the day my daughter went into labor and he was born, he was born with spina bifida. And he still has spina bifida today. And let me tell you, I got a little ticked with God. I did. I was pastoring a church, <laughs> and I was tacked off at God. <laughs> I'd done all the right stuff, but I was hacked off at God. Because if he could do all these other miracles for people, why in the world couldn't he do this one? Within just a few months, my wife's mother had been battling cancer. Like I said, she'd been married to an evangelist for 45 years. People all over the United States sent them words from God. God gave me a word. You're going to be healed of your cancer, and you're going to live the rest of your life normal. All over the place, people sent scripture, people sent word, God's going to heal you. God gave me a word. You know what happened? Donnie died of cancer. And then one year later after that, her daddy died, Mike. And then three months after that, her sister died of liver failure. And then about six months or eight months after that, through an unbelievable weird circumstance, I lost the church that I had been pastoring for 11 years that I thought I would spend the rest of my life at. And it was gone. And all of a sudden, after spending 30 years in the ministry, I had no church and no job. And all that happened in four years. You would say, because you got hacked off at God. <laughs> Maybe that's true. I don't know. I didn't stay hacked off at him for a long period of time, but when that came through on that day of birth, I was hacked at him, you know. And I, the things that built me up through my life got me through that. But all of those crises came suddenly upon my life, and it brought fear of the unknown. And whenever there is the unknown, it produces fear that produces despair. And that's where these disciples were. 
when they were in the storm in and watching and turning around and seeing Jesus in the back of the boat. Now, what's the lesson that we learn out of all of this? Again, get the scene. The boat's rocking and rolling, and it's about to sink, and all the disciples are in the boat. They had given their life up. They would given their jobs up to follow this man named Jesus. They had listened to him preach on the Sermon on the Mount. They had watched him do some miracles. They had watched him turn water to wine already. They had seen some miracles. But now when they're all hanging on to that middle pole with the sail on it, maybe trying to hang on to life, they look back there and Jesus is sound asleep. And can't you imagine as they were hollering at one another, you think we ought to wake him up? Why should we wake him up? He doesn't care. He's sound asleep back there. We're about to drown. He doesn't care. Finally, one of them had to be Peter. He was always sticking his foot in his mouth, wasn't he? Peter, somebody walked over there, and they shook Jesus, and the boat's rocking, and the waves are coming over, and they said, Jesus, what's wrong with you? Don't you care we're all going to drown? What's your problem? I don't know exactly what all they said to him, but they were a little hacked off. Finally, Jesus woke up. Now, Jesus was God. You think he already knew what was going on? You think there was a storm already that he knew there was a storm? Do you think he knew the disciples had already had this dialogue with each other around that that pole? I mean, he's God. He knows what's going on. He wakes up, and he looks at the storm, and he just says, Peace, be still, and it flicks off. And here's all these guys scared to death, sopping wet, rain, uh, all the water dripping off of their face and off their beard, and standing around the pole holding on to each other because they think they're about to die. And Jesus always asked the question then and now today. What was the question? What did he say? He said, why are you so afraid and do you still not have faith? Why are you so afraid? Here's another way to say that. Do you really think I was going to let your boat sink with me in it? Isn't that what he's saying? He's saying, do you really think we're all going to drown out here? I'm in the boat. I'm in your life. I'm with you. Do you really think I'm going to let you die? Let me just tell you something here. People do die. Children die. Your parents die. People do die. People get cancer. People get tragedies. Divorce takes place. You lose your job. All of those things happen to us. They happen suddenly. They produce fear, and they produce despair in our life. But let me tell you, Jesus is still in the boat, even in the middle of death. He's there. He knows what's going on in your life. And when we do get hacked off at him, and let me just tell you, there's going to be times that you'll get hacked off a guy. I'm not that weird. I'm not the only person in the world that's ever got hacked off a guy because he didn't do what I thought he ought to do. But let me tell you, he's just simply saying to us, he's still in the boat. He's still in the boat. He knows what you're going through. He knows how you're feeling. He knows your thoughts. He knows all your actions. And even though he's asleep in the back of the boat, 
be still in your boat. What do you do or what are you going to do the next crisis that comes and you turn around and Jesus is sleeping in the back of the boat? You have one or two reactions. You can either run to him and shake him and say, what's the deal with you? What's wrong with you? Why aren't you saving us? Or you can operate by faith. I wonder what would have happened to this story if the disciples would have just said, man, Jesus is sound asleep. He's back there, but we're trusting him. Man, we've sold out to him. We've locked it up. We're going to just go. If, he, if we all die, that's all right. He's going to be with us. That's the two reactions that could have happened. They chose to operate without faith, and that's why Jesus says, why are you so afraid Do you still not When you go through the book of Acts, you'll find all these tragedies touching people's lives. When you go to Hebrews chapter 11, most likely the Apostle Paul wrote that, and he writes in chapter 11 the great faith battle, faith chapter. And verse 6 says this, without faith, it is what? What's the word? Without faith, it is what? Nobody knows that verse? Without faith, it is impossible. Would you say that with me? Impossible. Without faith, it is impossible. What's the rest of the sentence? To do what? To please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. I wonder how many Christians are going to live their entire life, go to church, go to Sunday school, do all the things of, of church, be a tither all your life, teach Sunday school, be a deacon, be an elder, do all of that stuff all of your life, and never please God. And people say, oh, oh, no, all of that pleases God. Let me tell you, that stuff can all be done in the flesh. A person can get up and teach Sunday school every Sunday and do it in the flesh. And the reason I know that is because there's people, there's been plenty of deacons and Sunday school teachers that I know that were having affairs or involved in pornography and all the rest of that for five years and ten years and teaching Sunday school every Sunday. How many preachers do we know have been doing the same thing, involved in all that, doing it? That's all in the flesh. You think any of that's pleasing God? Not any of that's pleasing you can operate in the flesh every day of your life and die and